0: Greetings, listeners. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Kevin Rothrock, and I'll be your host today. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Jeffrey Mankoff, an adjunct fellow with the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and a visiting scholar at Columbia University in New York. Mankoff recently released a second edition of his book, Russian Foreign Policy The Return of Great Power Politics, published in October last year by Roman and Littlefield. As the book's subtitle suggests, Mankoff's primary focus is on explaining the origins and engine of Russia's post Yeltsin resurgence in geopolitics, as well as exploring possible trajectories for its future development. This book is wonderfully structured, breaking down the production and execution of Russian foreign policy into chapters on its general contours, its internal influences, and Russia's relationship with the United States, as well as its neighbors in Europe, China, and the former Soviet regions. In this interview, Mankov and I had a particularly interesting conversation about Russian domestic interest groups and the impact of their competition on foreign policy makers. Mankoff also applied the lessons of his book to the recent friction between Russia and the West over events in Libya and Syria. Given the Byzantine nature of Russian policymaking, as well as the continuing record of disagreements and mutual confusion between Russian and Western observers about certain geopolitical hotspots, Mankoff's book is a welcome study of the opinions and pressures that shape Russian foreign policy. For more of this discussion, here's my interview with Jeffrey Mankoff. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, everyone. I'm joined here today by Jeffrey Mankoff, author of a second edition of his book, Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Yeah, sure. Uh, Before we dive into your book, I wonder if you wouldn't, let our listeners know a bit about your background. Where are you from originally? How did you come to study Russian foreign policy? And how do you see your work fitting into the field more broadly? Um, okay. Uh, so
1: I am originally from Denver. Um, I lived there most of my childhood till I was 18. Um, then I uh, went off to college. Um, I got interested in Russia, I guess, just because the period when I was growing up was, um, the end of the Cold War and you know, was the fall of the Berlin Wall and Gorbachev and Yeltsin and it was just a very exciting period and uh, you know, if I looked outside my window and saw you know, my surroundings, it it was easy to think about wanting to be involved in a bigger world and wanting to get out uh, and, see, you know, understand the world beyond the, the little uh, neighborhood where I grew up. And it just seemed like Russia, and the, what was then the Soviet Union, was a place where there's some very exciting stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that that's still the case today, that um, it's a region that remains enormously significant um, and where there are, fairly profound changes taking place, Uh, and so it's always been, uh, you know, a place that I've been able to find, uh, been able to be interested in.
2: Right, right, right.
1: In terms of um, how my work fits in, I guess the thing I would say is that, um, well, I would say a couple of things. Um, You know, I trained as a historian, and um, I... I think bring a strong historical sensibility to my um, work looking at contemporary uh, foreign policy challenges. I see. And I think that's important because there are continuities uh, across time both inside Russia and in this country as we um, figure out how to deal with Russia and increasingly with its neighbors. Uh, and I think those continuities influence our interests, they influence our actions, they influence how we think about uh, that part of the world. And so understanding sort of how we got from there to here, um, I think, you know, is it, it's an important contribution. Um You know, at the same time, um, I have an academic background, and I'm now working in Washington um, at a think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, where the interest is more applied, more uh, contemporary. And sure. so I think, you know, what I'm trying to do is, you know, bring the academic sensibility that I acquired um, as uh, a graduate student, as a historian, mm-hmm. To bear on uh, these contemporary policy challenges, and then write about them in a way that is accessible to policymakers, to a sort of non-specialist audience, to you know people in Washington whose job it is
0: is to uh, make sense of what's happening in this part of the world. Have you? Just sort of, I've a, a curiosity of mine. Have you had, encountered much friction working in policy in Washington with a historical background? I'm, I'm I wonder. No
1: no, 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 not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think there's a kind of um, one contrast to the academy. I think is that um, in the sort of policy world. Um, you know, your background is in some ways less important than what you say and, you know, the mm-hmm. quality of your work. Um, there are these fairly tight disciplinary boundaries, uh, in the academy. Right. And that I've always uh thought it was unfortunate because it means that it's difficult for historians and political scientists and anthropologists and mm-hmm. so on to talk right. to one right. another. Uh, and that kind of limits you know, the ability of, of people to do creative work and mm-hmm. the way the career incentives are structured just make it difficult to get outside of your disciplinary box. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things I found being in Washington is that there's a lot less... Um, concern about that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say sensible things and you have interesting insights and you do good research, it right. matters less, I think, where you're coming from.
0: Yeah, that, I Actually, I worked with Leon Aaron at the American Enterprise mm-hmm. Institute a couple of mm-hmm. years ago for, for a few years, and, and that was my experience as well. His background, in, in fact, is in, I think, political sociology, and so he, mm-hmm. he too, wasn't in a sort of strictly uh, policy kind of academic uh, background, and so that, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that wasn't just a unique experience. Um, okay, well, fantastic. So, moving into questions more specifically about the book, uh, th- this book, even this actual second edition, was written before Medvedev announced uh, last September the return of Putin to the presidency, and of Our course, Putin announced his return to the presidency. Well, right, right, right. Um, yeah. and so um, you know, now he's he's been reelected, of course, uh, and uh, I wonder. When you wrote this, uh, when Medvedev was still perceived, he was really still perceived to be kind of uh, a politician of possible or considerable and growing political clout. Now, to what degree does his having stepped aside and apparently or you know, arguably validated the doubts about him? The, the doubts that existed all along. Uh, what does it say about the future of Russian foreign policy now? Y- y- you know, you you you've, you've written written a lot about in the book about continuities between Yeltsin and Putin, and between mm-hmm. Putin and Medvedev. Will there be? Will there be the? Will, will those continuities continue between Medvedev and Putin now? Um, yeah. Okay. So there's really two questions, I guess. Let me take those. Sure. first.
1: The one about uh, what it says about Medvedev. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it does um, validate the the perception that a lot of people had that uh, he was, in the words of the famous WikiLeaks cable, um, Robin to right. Putin's Batman. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that was always the case. He was sort of the handpicked successor. It was clear that, um, you know, Putin was perhaps off stage some of the time, especially on foreign policy, but that major foreign policy decisions couldn't be taken without Putin's approval. I think we forget that sometimes because, especially in in the United States, because I think there was a a qualitative difference in U S Russia relations after 2008, when Medvedev became president Mm -hmm. and in the period immediately preceding that. Um, And so it's easy to say, well, you know that's because Medvedev was pro was more pro American because he had a different policy agenda because he you know really pulled Russian foreign policy in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that approach ignores the role that Putin continued to play mm-hmm. and you know, played throughout Medvedev's presidency, mm-hmm. which was um, uh, you know to. to in, in, ensuring political buy-in on the part of a lot of people within the Russian establishment who I think were skeptical of uh, the uh, greater cooperation with the West in general and the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the U.S.-Russia reset, the the tightening of sanctions on Iran in 2010. I mean, those kind of major decisions um, you know, couldn't have been taken without Putin's assent. And I think we forget that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um Which gets me to the second question that you asked about uh, continuities in terms of Russian foreign policy now that uh, Putin is coming back to the Kremlin. And, you know, it, it's obviously difficult to predict the future. But sure. one of the things that I talked about in the book is um, precisely the continuity that you mentioned. And it's a continuity based on a kind of um, consensus among important thinkers and figures within the Russian elite about, you know, how to define Russian national interests. And flowing from that, therefore, the policy agenda that the country needs to undertake Mm um and so if i'm right then um you know that consensus is still largely in place obviously different people um approach it from different angles you certainly have some people in the intelligence services and in the military but uh, elsewhere as well Mm -hmm. who are profoundly skeptical of the west um who you know really believe this narrative that um even though the Soviet Union has collapsed, that the cold war is still kind of going on. The West wants to keep Russia surrounded and contained and weak. Um, And then you have others who think that that's just bunk and that, you know, Russia needs to have a good relationship with the West because that's the source of foreign investment of technology, of innovation that Mm -hmm. they really need to, um, to jumpstart the economy. Um, but what they have in common is, you know, a certain worldview, a, a certain notion of what Russia is and the role that it should play internationally, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that um, I talked about in the book, uh, it's a, a great power, which is, you know, to say a, a country that um, has full autonomy over its foreign policy, that's not, you know, following somebody else's agenda that, you know, is powerful and influential enough to, um, you know, define its own national interests and then go about pursuing them. Mm Um, it also has a particular way of going about and pursuing those interests, which, you know, includes things like, um, uh, the primacy of the of the u n security Council and international law, um, the notion that uh, international politics are and should be multipolar, which is to say that the west doesn 't have a kind of um, moral monopoly on um, you know setting the, the the global foreign policy agenda mm-hmm. you know Western values are western values they 're not universal values mm-hmm. um, and that other approaches are equally valid, Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, Russia, at the end of the day, is not interested in um, becoming part of the West, but Mm -hmm. nevertheless, often has an interest um, in cooperating with the West, but cooperating based on respect for those um, priorities and values that I just mentioned.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And, And to what degree, for instance you know, re- recent uh, Western interventions in the Middle East and in, in mm-hmm. North Africa. What To what degree is that an ideological uh, conflict between Russia and, mm-hmm. and, say, the West? And to what degree is it is it a Russian calculation of their sort of geopolitical national uh, interests? Mm-hmm. To some extent, it's both. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think, you know, certainly... In, in Libya which was the first right. and i think most notable of these interventions mm-hmm. um, you know Russia abstained on the vote at the UN security council that allowed the uh, imposition of the no fly zone so they had the ability to block that but they chose not to mm-hmm. um, however the russian narrative is that um, they didn't. They signed up for a no fly zone. They didn't sign up for military intervention right. and regime change. Right. Now, you know, I, I think that line is a little bit disingenuous because mm-hmm. if you listen to what Bob Gates who was then the the Secretary of Defense said before the vote took place before this even went to the Security Council. I mean, right. he went into pretty substantial detail about what the imposition of a no-fly zone would entail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was clear that, you know, this wasn't just a declarative policy, that this involved military action. Mm-hmm. Um, and the United States less so, but certainly the British and the French um, made clear their desire to um, assist the... the um, Transitional National Council, mm-hmm. the anti-Qaddafi rebels militarily. Right. So I think it was clear before the UN vote that you know what the, what was being talked about was not merely a declaration that you know Qaddafi's planes couldn't um, fly, but mm-hmm. that there was some sort of a broader uh, military intervention in the offing. Of right. course, that's not what the the Security Council resolution per se said, and I think that's where. Um, the dispute with the Russians um, came about right. um, and so we, well is this an ideological issue, is it an issue about Russian national interests and I guess you could say in, in a sense it's both mm-hmm. um, on the ideological level there's this question of the primacy of the Security Council and international law, um, which is to say that, you know, the Russians uh, believe, you know, I guess a very literal reading of the resolution that the Security Council passed. Um, And since that resolution didn't talk about military intervention or regime change and the like, Therefore, the U.S. and the West is kind of arrogating to itself the right to um, ignore international legality mm-hmm. as expressed in the Security Council, undertake these interventions. Um, and of course, this isn't the first time. I mean, this was a criticism that we heard in, in Kosovo and mm-hmm. certainly in Iraq um, in a way that undermines um, the importance of the Security Council and therefore undermines Russia's global influence because it's one of the the veto-wielding members of the Security Council, one of the P5. Mm -hmm. Um, On the question of interests, I mean, in Libya, it's it's a little harder to make that case because Russian interests were not very extensive. Um, in Syria, where we're having a, a big argument with the Russians now, I think that's more of a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Libya's, or I'm sorry, Syria is, um, an important customer for the Russian uh, military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got contracts worth, I believe, and I have to double check on the number, but I believe about $4 billion, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Russians have continued supplying uh, arms to um, the Assad regime during the, what for all intents and purposes, I think you'd have to characterize as a civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, the Russians have a naval facility uh, on the Mediterranean in Syria, it's their only overseas um, military facility outside the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. they obviously don't want to lose access to that. Right. Um, You know, they have fairly extensive ties to the Assad regime going back, you know, to the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that piece. And then more broadly, I think they're concerned about the spread of uh, Sunni extremism Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And, you know, again, if they look back at Libya, uh, they think that the question that we failed to ask ourselves was... Oh, okay, yeah, what comes next? Mm-hmm. You know, Gaddafi goes, what replaces him? It's not going to be a Jeffersonian democracy. And I think that, um, the convulsions the Libya is continuing to go through are evidence that, you know, that's a, a legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, more broadly, Russia's concerned about... Islamic fundamentalism, mm-hmm. um, Sunni in particular, uh, in part because of their own Muslim population, which is about 20 million people, in part because of Central Asia uh, and the Caucasus, where there are large Muslim populations on Russia's border, mm-hmm. um, and they really look at what's happening in the Middle East not through the prism of democratization, which is how I think we're inclined to view it—that you know, this is people rising up to demand their uh, inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the Russians look at it as being part of a sectarian conflict um, between Sunnis and Shiites. And, um, you know, it's being sponsored and promoted by the Saudis, the Qataris, and others. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the success of these rebellions in places like uh, Libya and Syria, which have had essentially non-sectarian uh, dictators for the last generation and mm-hmm. their replacement by, you know, the Saudi affiliated, uh, Islamist regimes is, you know, dangerous to Russian interests, mm-hmm. both in that part of the world and in, um, the
0: Middle East and in, um, the former Soviet Union. And so mm-hmm. they're opposed to that. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that sounds like that in part Russian, ac- Russian actions are motivated by a kind of, uh, <laughs> Geopolitical fear of of destabilization in the Middle East, but at the same time they're sort of reinforced by this what you call Kremlin Incorporated, which is a kind mm-hmm. of uh, I mean in this in this case I suppose it's largely the military industrial complex and and kind of these these clans and this, these business interests within the the state economy lobbying and then getting their way that isn't i mean it's not necessarily in the in russia's immediate interest although i guess it can be it can be uh, reconciled with these these larger fears about destabilization yeah i mean disentangling the two
1: strands is, is difficult in sure. a particular right. decision I, I wouldn't overrate the importance of, the, of what i call the book the kremlin incorporated piece. right i mean certainly that's there mm-hmm. um and i think it's particularly pronounced in the former Soviet Union. Right. Um it, it's important elsewhere too including in the Middle East mm-hmm. but I don't think it's decisive. Mm-hmm. Um I think you know some of these bigger um ideological and geopolitical concerns are um more important. I mean at the end of the day mm-hmm. um you know the amount of money that the Russians are getting from uh, their arms contracts with Syria is substantial, but it's not
0: game-changing, I guess. Would you say the uh, same thing about Iran and, and uh, Russian cooperation with the, the nuclear program? Yeah, mm, okay. uh, right. I mean, again,
1: you know, there is a commercial consideration. Right. The, the Russians have been building the, um, the Bushir, um civilian nuclear power plant in Iran for oh. the last uh, They built it, I guess. It's now done. But, um, you know, they did that for over a decade. And I think, you know, they were interested in making sure that that contract was fulfilled, that they got paid. Um, It also kind of served as an advertisement for their nuclear industry. You know, we'll go into these difficult environments and, you know fulfill these contracts, uh, right. were more reliable than, you know, the, the Western firms. I mean, mm-hmm. The Bluecher reactor was originally um, contracted to a German company, which then pulled out. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, it's a way for the, the, the Russians to advertise their wares and advertise their reliability. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that I don't think was the in any way that the decisive consideration when it comes to, um, their stance on Iran. I mean, for one thing, um, about a year and a half ago, the Obama administration basically decided that, you know, the Boucher reactor was not a major proliferation threat, Mm -hmm. um, because it was, you know, the, the way it was designed and the way it was going to be monitored, uh, it couldn't it would be very difficult to um, use it to produce um, enriched uranium or plutonium for a weapons program. I see. Uh, and so they basically, you know, adopted the Russian counter argument, which is that you know, okay, this is a, this is separate from the, the nuclear weapons program that we're concerned that mm-hmm. Iran has. Okay. Um, and, you know, they stopped talking about it. They stopped, you know, waving sticks at the Russians over it. Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, in the process, Russia be started cooperating to a pretty extensive degree on you know washington's priority of mm-hmm. trying to check uh iran's development of nuclear weapons And that included i think most prominently the um the adoption of um security council resolution 1929 uh in june of 2010 which mm-hmm. tightened the sanctions on uh iran over the nuclear program mm-hmm. um you know and and you know, through the mechanism of the UN. Now, the Russians have had some problems with what they see as um, the implementation of unilateral sanctions right. by the US mm-hmm. and, and the European Union mm-hmm. um, outside the framework of the UN. But that gets back to, you know, this belief that I talked about before that, um, you know, the legitimacy of, um, of you know, the, in the, the, not only military action, but of you know coercive action, I guess, right. on the international
0: stage continues
1: to lie with the UN Security Council.
0: I see. I see. Okay. Um, well, to, to bring it back to the to the book more specifically, uh, much of much of uh, Russian foreign policy is addressed at big questions like how does Russia see itself? And then you you then break down a question like that into, you know, two separate questions like the political elite sees itself in one way and that the general public understands, you know, Russia's role in the world in another way. Um, So a question to you is – for me, is how do you think Russia sees itself overall? Is it a satiated or a revisionist power? Is it, an, is it a nation state or an empire? And I understand, having read your book, that that there's no one answer for that. But but how kind of how would you how would you direct uh, listeners to sort of approach that question if they're coming to it for yeah. the first time? I mean, you know, those are not easy questions. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <clears throat>
1: Russia's not a nation state. That's mm-hmm. probably the easiest one to to deal with. Okay, um, it's a very diverse. Country, um, you know, after the Soviet collapse, it was—it's now about eighty percent ethnic Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is more of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a nation state than the Soviet Union was. But nevertheless, um, it's quite diverse. And uh, you know, there are two different words in the Russian language that they both get translated as Russian right. uh, in English, mm-hmm. but. You know, one of them means ethnic Russian, Ruski, and the other, um, Rasiski means uh you know citizen of russia mm-hmm. and there's a tension <clears throat> excuse me there's a tension between those two notions of russianness i suppose and during the current um political campaign you've definitely seen some of that tension on display um you know over you know should the russian state be subsidizing the north caucasus for example um you know because people like dagestanis and chechens and english and the like are russkiye but they're not Ruskia. um So, you know, you have different strands in the Russian um, political class, you know, saying that, you know, these are Russian citizens as much as, you know, an ethnic Russian from Moscow. And then you have ethnic nationalists um, who who have become increasingly prominent in recent years saying, you know, no, these people are are different, they are others, we shouldn't, um, you know, you shouldn't taxing Russians to pay for them. Um, but it, it's not a nation state. Um, it's not really an empire either. Um, although the Russian state evolved from an empire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it, the historic core was, um, originally around Kiev and then after the Mongol conquest moved north and ultimately spread out from, uh, Muscovy, which is to say Moscow. Right. Um, through this process of imperial expansion. Um, but, you know, that essentially ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, it's it's a multinational state. Uh, it's a post-imperial state. Um, and it's struggling to, you know, reconcile those different Strands in its history, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's a post-imperial state in a way that you know, is, is distinct from, you know, a country like Great Britain. Um, I forgot who said it, but you know, there's the the line that um, Great Britain had an empire, Russia was an empire, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know, there's there's really something to that. You know, you could think about the UK, England, even separate from the British Empire. Mm -hmm. You know, it was clear where the metropole was, where um, the empire was. With Russia, you can't really do that. Uh, You know, there's no analog to England um, within Russia. You can't, you know, say, you know, this is sort of the core of the broader post-imperial space. Right, because the whole thing is contiguous. Yeah, the whole thing is contiguous. Um, There's been, you know, interactions across that space Mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. Um, And so it's just, it's murkier. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, that's probably not a very satisfying answer.
0: Well, no, I think it's it's a great segue, actually, to a question about the, the differences between Russian ethno-nationalists and, and, and what you call imperialistic Eurasianists, um, mm-hmm. like Alexander Dugan is, is your primary example. Um, and the, these, this is sort of half of the equation of of uh, domestic sort of foreign policy interest groups that, that you describe. And they seem to be in, in really close... Uh, dialogue or, or debate I suppose um, and I was wondering if you could kind of give because I I think this is a subject that that many even many students of Russia probably are not that familiar with because it is a kind of it's it, first of all it's it's a uh, it's an argument or it's a debate that's that's being updated every day it's still very much mm-hmm. contemporary um, but what what can you what what can you say about the kind of basic structure of it yeah well I you know I think one of the things that's
1: interesting about the Russian Political debate, I guess, is that there are these two strands that don't really agree with each other. And I think normally, when you think about um, the term that we often use, is the far right. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know that may not be the most accurate way of characterizing it. Um, you know, the, you, you can kind of characterize you know what a far right party is mm-hmm. um, in Russia. Though I mean, you have. These two different strands, which are, which have very distinct visions for, you know, what Russia is and consequently what its international role should be. In. Um, and I talk about this in the book. I, mean, I have the one group that I talk about that I call uh, sort of ethno-nationalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are people like, you know, the, one of the examples I talk about is the uh, Movement Against Illegal Immigration, right. the DPNI. Mm-hmm. um the Slavic Union is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, Both of which are, I
0: think, outlawed now.
1: Yeah, which are uh, officially banned, but yeah. nevertheless, right. you know, still uh exist in some form or another right um, you know these are the sort of, of uh you know racist um neo nazi uh groups and they're the ones who really are emphasizing this you know ruskia not russkia mm-hmm. element um, you know which is to say that the Russian state is and should be the homeland of the Russian nation, the mm-hmm. right. uh, and that it should, you know, not have anything to do with all of these, you know, scary, dark-skinned people mm-hmm. um, in the Caucasus and Central Asia, even the ones who are sort of Russian citizens mm-hmm. in the North Caucasus. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been this big movement, um, or I wouldn't, a big movement there's been this movement over the last year or so um, under the slogan of stop feeding the Caucasus, right um, which you know is, is led by some of these groups mm-hmm. and their basic argument is that you know the, the North Caucasus which is part of the Russian Federation is among the largest recipients of aid from the federal budget mm-hmm. um, but you know the people who are receiving it are not real Russians mm-hmm. uh, and so therefore the real Russians in the rest of the country shouldn't be paying for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an argument that's received increasing attention uh, that's has become more prominent over the course of the last year or so.
0: Have you been following it all the way that the the actual Russian Russian liberals or what what might be described here as the Atlanticists have been attempting to join forces with the ethno nationalists and trying to mm-hmm. describe, you know, the the I the you know the ideology of of a Russian nation state. In the terms of sort of European uh, historical context, and at the same time, you know, they, they there are undertones certainly of say, you know, Kadyrov in, in Chechnya is is uh, kind of this non-ethnic Russian thug, but the, but they they'll try mm-hmm. to play up the fact that he's a thug, he's not a democrat, exactly, right? Yeah, th- th- I mean, this has been one of the. A-
1: dilemmas of the, the protest movement that mm-hmm. um, emerged um, really in December against the parliamentary election. Right. You know, we've seen um, this is still out in the streets after the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, the, the two um uh groupings i guess um that have really been at the forefront of the protest movement are you know these nationalists mm-hmm. and then the liberals right um who obviously make kind of strange bedfellows right um and it's an unresolved question, you know, to what extent they can work together, to what extent uh, their agendas coincide. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, they both think that uh, if elections were held in a more free and fair manner, they would do better than they did under the, you know, the kind of rigging that was undertaken in, in favor of United Russia and in favor of Putin. And better than each other, probably, too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, there have been tensions in a right. lot of the rallies. There have been, you know, the different groups have been sort of scuffling with each other. Mm-hmm. and You know, they've been trying to, you know, one has been trying to keep the other off the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been severe yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in part, I think that's because they have a common enemy for the time being. Right. And if it ever gets to the stage where that's no longer the case, then, mm-hmm. you know, you have a very
0: different um, political dynamic. mm
2: mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And so on the other side of, of, of that, you know, argument, if we kind of can combine the, the liberals and the nationalists for the time being, we have these, these Eurasianists and these, these mm-hmm. uh, even the, the central uh, Dirjavnist people are probably kind of can be put in a single camp, um, possibly. I mean, what, what, what are they about? Yeah, so
1: getting back to this idea of the the far right, I guess. Um, So if the one strand is the kind of Mm ethno-nationalist, the other, that in a lot of other contexts I think we would refer to as a far right, but in Russia it's probably something different, Mm -hmm. is this group, the Eurasianists, or how they usually refer to it, and how they refer to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are... You know there are different strands. Some of these people are more extreme than others, but um, you know their priority is basically um, to have Russia be the the core of um, integration processes within Eurasia, which is to say primarily the former Soviet Union. But you know some of them think also about you know China and Iran and Mm -hmm. India and and all of that. Um, And, you know, somebody like Dugan, whom you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, he's sometimes seen as the kind of ideological godfather of this movement. He's a professor at uh, Moscow State University. And uh, you know his idea about Eurasianism has, interestingly, this kind of racialist component. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he talks about um, ethnoses and the, you know how the, the Slavs and the Turks and the the Finns all have you know this common history, which gives them this kind of common um, worldview and common values, and mm-hmm. you know that this is. Um, mm-hmm. Out against the kind of Atlanticist worldview, Um, you know, it's it's collectivist, it's uh, it's based on religion and mysticism, Mm -hmm. and it's you know anti-rational, and it's sort of everything that um, you know Atlanticism and and Western liberal values are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, in part for that reason, you know, people like Dugan see the role of you know this Eurasian um that they're interested in building up around russia as being uh to provide a counterweight to the west mm-hmm. to provide a you know a counterweight to the influence of the united states um so you know in in some ways this is just kind of a, a recasting of the the cold war bipolar conflict in these you know in in these kind of uh, Mystical, goofy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not particularly serious, right. um, pseudo scientific terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time, they have these people have a lot of uh, support within the military and the security services mm-hmm.
0: and, and the like. So, mm-hmm. you know, they can't be entirely dismissed. Mm-hmm. And and do you have any idea? Is their support limited to members of the elite or members of the military elite or do these ideas appeal to the Russian public more broadly? For instance, there's a point in your book when uh, when you say that the, the Russian people or the public have, have a f- fairly low faith in their impact on the beliefs and preferences mm-hmm. of the actual policymakers. So yes. to, to what degree, how does... Uh, I mean, it seems apparent that... that Russian ethno nationalism or even even liberalism I suppose they have at least pockets of support among the people what about what about something like Eurasianism
1: Yeah I mean all of these groups have a certain amount of of public support I and mean, it it always depends you know how you uh, phrase the question right. um, but you know the thing with the Eurasianists for example um, if you ask people at large, you know, whether they want to recreate the Soviet Union or something that looks kind of like the Soviet Union support for that notion is very, very low. Um, you know, people have other things that they're more concerned about, um, like, you know, whether they can keep their job, whether they can, you know, um, afford to go on vacation this year, you know, whether they can, um, you know, visit their children if they're living abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, things like that. And that's always the kind of, that's always the dilemma, I think, that authoritarian states face, is that, um, you know, the things that the public is interested in are much more prosaic Mm -hmm. um, than these kind of grand ideological questions about, you know, where does Russia fit in the world? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's guns versus butter. And, you know, in a democracy, most of the time, people are more interested in butter. Right. Um, but you know political elites, especially political elites who are not uh, always accountable to the citizenry,
0: often have different ideas
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay and so for, in a, in a case like for instance um Libya or syria when when there are when there seems to be a kind of uh, uh you know dual track game that the Russians are playing where or maybe game's not the right word, but their behavior seems to kind of have two sides to it, for instance. You know they they don't veto a no fly zone, but then they go home and kind of com- uh, not complain, but criticize it to say a domestic audience or even an international audience. Now, is that kind of performance? Is that intended to appeal to what they assume are biases of the Russian public or the voting public that they don't like American aggression, or are they are they stirring up passions that otherwise wouldn't be there? Or how how does how does that how do we understand actions like that? Yeah, see, I don't
1: anti-Americanism is a longstanding trope in Russian politics, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, and you know, it's you we saw plenty of it during the the presidential election for example i mean putin you know really um went out of his way to uh, you know make accusations sort of insult um, the american government and i think they do that because there's this assumption that um you know it has political resonance among uh the population and i think to a certain extent they're right um it does uh you know if, you know, whose fault is it that, you know, I don't know, the the, the Soviet Union collapsed and the economy collapsed and, you know, unemployment spiked. Uh, if, you know, there's been this uh, demonization of the West, you know, going back to the Soviet Union, I think a lot of people were sort of schooled in that. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of reflexive skepticism. And, you know, I think you see less of that, obviously, among the educated in the urban intelligentsia
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you know those weren't necessarily the people that putin was talking to mm-hmm. um <clears throat> you know outside of moscow outside of st petersburg um outside of university towns you know you i think find people for whom that message resonates but it's a more of a um uh a kind of visceral response rather than a you know an advocacy for specific policies okay uh, And, you know, I I think that it had this kind of mobilizational goal in the context of of the Russian political season. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I... My guess is that people like Putin and and you know the people who are advising him probably overestimate the impact of some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear it had some impact, and you know it's clear that there is an audience for it. But right. um, I think its overall salience uh, to the population is probably overrated by those guys, by those folks.
0: Okay. Now, so when you write something like when you're describing the the end of of uh, 1990s era Russian foreign policy, which is uh, um I suppose compared to what what happens under Putin, and maybe even presumably Putin again, is a more assertive foreign policy, or at least a more confident foreign policy, one that that uh, that has less hesitation about opposing or even obstructing Western or American aims. Now you say that the 1990s era ended uh, with both domestic opposition and foreign skepticism. What what do you mean by that? Um, I'm. Not exactly clear. It was, uh, foreign opposition and domestic skepticism to what? No, I'm sorry. It was domestic opposition uh, domestic, and foreign yeah. skepticism to for, to to the the character of 1990s Russian foreign policy. I guess it is the 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 idea that uh, <clears throat> that the that Russia will sort of play along with uh, with whatever it is. That, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, the, basically, right. the, the, the I suppose the watershed moment in the book is when um, Primakov ascends to to power. Or mm-hmm. to influence, and that that this sort of marks a, a moment. And you, 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 the background that you give is this idea that there's both a domestic and an international. Uh, uh, there are pressures that both kind of bring about this this change. Right. And uh, given the given that we're talking about kind of domestic uh, preferences, I wonder wh- what do you mean by domestic opposition or mm-hmm. or also by foreign skepticism? Okay. Yeah. So there's this
1: period in the early 90s, you know, right after the Soviet collapse, mm-hmm. where. Um, I think the assumption was that, you know, Russia was... En route, to, you know, really becoming part of the West, right. uh, and this was articulated by Yeltsin early on. This was articulated by his uh, first foreign minister, Andrei Kozurev. Uh and it had, you know, at least a, a degree of support in the West. Um, and you know, this was essentially the path that a country like you know Poland or Hungary or the Czech Republic um, ultimately followed, which is to say they sort of jettisoned their communist identity. Um, They saw their future as being part of Europe and being part of the West, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't just, you know, a geographic orientation, but it also implies accepting certain values, um, you know, undertaking certain policies in terms of economic and political reform. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately, it's based on a kind of of shared values Um, and that was a transition that political elites in most of Eastern Europe were sooner or later willing to make and obviously some countries in Eastern Europe have gone further down that path than others have Uh, obviously you know Serbia under Milosevic was not going down that path Mm -hmm. Um, and you know is sort of gradually and haltingly going that direction now But in Russia, you know, it was much more complicated uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, one, because, you know, unlike in, say, Poland, you know, communism and communist rule in Russia wasn't something that was imposed by foreign occupation. It wasn't a foreign import. Uh, It was the result of a of domestic processes of a revolution within Russia. Uh, So it had a kind of legitimacy that it never had. Although I
0: I suppose Russian ethno-nationalists would argue the opposite, right? They would kind of argue that these Ukrainian and Georgian, uh, you know, criminals sort of uh, brought on this. this, this, Well, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, well, and more apropos,
1: they would blame the Jews. Right. (laughs) Um, But, you know, among the public at large. Yeah. Um, you know, I think communism in Russia had a legitimacy that it never had in Eastern Europe for obvious reasons Um, and you know, on top of that it's important to remember that Russia, the Soviet Union had two generations under communist rule. so by the time the USSR collapsed in 1991, there was basically nobody left alive who right. had any experience of life in the pre-communist world. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Eastern Europe where it lasted for one generation, you did. Right. So in some ways, it was easier to reestablish some of those institutions, some of those practices that existed in a country like Poland or Czechoslovakia that were there, mm-hmm. you know, in the 1930s and 1940s in however imperfect form. Right. Um, whereas in Russia you sort of had to start from scratch okay. uh, and that was a more difficult prospect. And Then the other issue of course is that well Russia is a heck of a lot bigger than Poland or Hungary or Bulgaria or any of the Eastern European countries mm-hmm. uh, and so you know for the European Union for NATO um, it was obviously a, a major undertaking to integrate a country like Poland um, and to integrate all of Eastern Europe mm-hmm. um, but you know, at the end of the day, that process of expansion and integration, you know, it changed the balance within some of these institutions. Uh, you know, it, it gave an eastern wing to the EU and NATO. And, you know, it it changed the agenda of those organizations because the new countries had their own um, ideas and their own priorities. But, you know, it, there was still kind of a balance. Um, whereas if, if you think about bringing in a country like Russia, Mm -hmm. which has, you know, a hundred and 140 million people, I think, um, that creates some very practical problems. Uh, you know, it would be by far the largest country in any of these organizations. And, you know, how do you design institutions so that, you know, they don't get dominated by a country that's, you know, that much larger, Mm -hmm. um, and also, and this maybe gets back to the, the argument of some of these Eurasianists. You know, Russia is in some, in a lot of senses, European, but it's also Asian. It's also Eurasian. <clears throat> it's also Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the you know the problems, the challenges that Russia faces in Siberia and the Far East, for example, are. Vastly different from, you know, the kind of problems that the countries of the European Union face. Mm -hmm. And just figuring out how to you know, an institution such as the EU would involve itself in, you know, something like the development of the Russian Far East is just, it, it's a conceptual leap too far, I think. Right, right. Um, and in the kind of heady early 1990s, I think some of those challenges just weren't given enough attention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, that, that's the foreign skepticism bit. And then the domestic part was just this notion that, well, you know, The the West, you know, promises one thing and then does something else, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether this was financial assistance after the Soviet collapse. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got to remember how profound the economic disaster was in Russia in the early 1990s. And I think there was an expectation that, you know, the West was going to come through with something like the Marshall Plan Mm -hmm. uh, to help the transition. Um, Obviously, they didn't, and uh, there was a lot of resentment that built up as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Russia wasn't welcomed into NATO, EU, anything like that, whereas its former satellites in Eastern Europe were, Mm -hmm. um, which fed this perception that, you know, the West was still interested in playing these geopolitical games. You know, they wanted to expand NATO right up to Russia's borders in order to contain Russia in order to surround it and keep it weak mm-hmm. um, and that just kind of fed this, this resentment which was I think expressed most starkly by these Eurasianists but had much broader purchase um, within Russian society mm-hmm. that you know even if Russia wanted to join this western community the west didn't
0: want to have it I see Okay, um, now what you, you, we've we've talked about the EU and NATO. What about the WTO? Well, we haven't really talked in any great detail about the Atlanticists, although we have mentioned mm. liberals. But does Russia entering the WTO does that say something new about the state of of the foreign policy camps within Russian politics? Are the Atlanticists now are they are they winning? Uh, no, I mean I, I don't think of
1: the WTO as being an Atlanticist institution. It's mm-hmm. it, it's a global institution. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. You know, membership, I think, does affect the foreign policy debate in Russia okay. um, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, part of the Eurasianist ideology, I think, is um, autarky uh, or, you know, the, the formation of a kind of closed trading bloc within, if not Russia itself, then kind of Eurasia or the post-Soviet space. Um And, you know, the protection of of Russian industry, you know, the formation of privileged economic links with, uh, you know, countries like Kazakhstan and and Ukraine and Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other post-Soviet countries, Belarus, Um, and uh, the WTO makes that a lot more difficult uh, because, you know, it requires essentially most favored nation status. To all other WTO members, so you can't, you know, discriminate in favor of your friends. Uh, I think that's important in terms of, you know, ultimately orienting um, Russia's economy. At the same time, um, you know, part of the argument against Russia's joining the WTO. And, you know, this is the argument against joining the WTO or against trade liberalization in a lot of countries is the impact that it's going to have on domestic uh, industry. And in the Russian case, that's, you know, mostly heavy industry um, manufacturing, um, which is just not globally competitive, but is nevertheless, uh, you know, very lucrative for um, the people who uh, who own and manage it. Um and so, you know, that was the, the, source of a lot of opposition to joining the WTO, you know, somebody like, Oleg yeah. uh, who's a, a aluminum, uh, magnate yeah. was, you know, until the financial crisis, one of the leading voices against, uh, joining the WTO. Yeah. Um, you know, now that it's happened, you know, Russia is going to have to open its markets and mm-hmm. it's going to have, to, those industries are going to have to compete. Right. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to be able to, which mm-hmm. means that, you know, they'll probably disappear and, you know, that's going to have social consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the question then is, you know, can the russian government figure out how to cope with those mm-hmm. consequences they're not necessarily going to be in moscow and st petersburg they're going to be in you know places where these
0: in you know some of these factory cities in the urals the monotowns and Siberia. And so yeah, yeah and the, 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 the mm-hmm. now is that so if it's not a victory say for the atlantis is it is it a sort of a wound or a defeat for for various interests within say kremlin incorporated then yeah mm-hmm. I, I think it i think it is
1: mm-hmm. um, those were the people who I think were really strongly, most strongly against the WTO, in Mm -hmm. large part because it would affect their own interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would affect their own bottom line. Uh, Even if, you know, in the long run, staying out of the WTO would mean Russia gets less foreign investment, it gets right. less, you know, technology transfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it moves, it doesn't move uh, as far down the path of modernization as, you know, certainly somebody like Dmitry Medvedev would uh, have liked. Mm-hmm. Now, in the long run, you know, I think that may redound to the benefit of people who want to forge closer ties with the West, um, it just, you know, because financially, uh, you know, the the West is the source of a lot of the things that Russia wants, right. you know, financial crisis notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, w- one of the, the big problems, particularly in U.S. Russian relations, is just the paucity of economic links. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the low value of bilateral trade, um, the, the, the lack of, of foreign investment. Uh, and, you know, I, I think having Russia in the WTO makes it easier to build some of those links mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it gives foreign investors confidence, right? and it gives them restitution mechanisms if things go wrong. right? Um, and so in the long run, you know, if you build those kind of economic ties, I think that can help smooth uh, the political relationship over time, which mm-hmm. I think is what, you know, proponents of Russia's WTO entry uh, are hoping for.
0: Okay. All right. Um, in your chapter on Russia and its near abroad, just to say its, it's post-Soviet neighbors, uh, you highlight a sort of ironic contradiction between Russian ambitions to regional hegemony and then wider ambitions to global influence. Um, could you explain wh- why are these two goals often mutually exclusive? Cool. Well, I mean, in part because of the way that Russia has gone about, uh,
1: seeking uh, regional hegemony. Mm-hmm. Uh, the war in Georgia I think being a good example of that. Uh, you know, invading your neighbors doesn't do a lot for your global brand, let's put it that way. Right. Um, and I think that really um, cost Russia in the eyes of a lot of the world. It's telling that, you know, only a handful of, of states have recognized the independence of, of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Right. Um, and al- almost all of them are, you know, either states that are doing it because they want to stick a thumb in the eye of the West, like Mm -hmm. Venezuela, or, you know, there are these little um, Pacific island territories that um, have gotten financial uh, inducements from
0: Russia to do so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Well, we're, we're approaching an hour here, so we're very grateful for your time today, and I know we need to let you go, but perhaps before we do that, you could let our listeners know what you're working on at the moment. Okay. Um yeah, I have a couple of different um uh, projects in the works. Um,
1: one of them is um a report that I'm doing with uh, a Russian colleague actually on uh US Russian cooperation in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of thinking outside the box and looking down the road uh a little bit. Where are some areas where um the US and Russia have some common interests uh mm-hmm. you know, following the um um, what I guess in, in Washington they're calling the pivot of US strategy to Asia mm-hmm. um, and then sort of institutionally here at the CSIS where I work we're um, developing a, a big project on uh, the post-Soviet region mm-hmm. and on sort of US foreign policy interests uh, relations with not only Russia but um, a lot of the other important uh, regional players such as Turkey uh, Iran, China and the
0: like now, does this get into the kind of w- what you conclude your book with, which is sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a recommendation or a, a kind of review of non-zero-sum politics in the in the, the surrounding area, the area surrounding Russia, kind of cooperative approach? You know, I mean,
1: on, on the policy level, that's always your ideal. Right. Um, obviously, it's... You know, sometimes it's more possible than others right. uh, you know I, with Russia I, I do think you know there are areas a lot of areas where um, interests coincide um, you know and a, a good example I think is regional security uh, in Central Asia mm-hmm. you know the, the, this has been I think an overlooked area of cooperation over the last several years you know Russia's role in facilitating transit logistics to Afghanistan I think right. has not gotten as much attention as it probably should mm-hmm. um And now, you know, Russia is going to be assisting with uh, transit out of Afghanistan. Right. And, you know, I I think that lays the foundation for, um, you know, different kinds of cooperation, particularly in and around Central Asia, Mm -hmm. where there's, I think, a shared concern in Moscow and in Washington over, um, you know, the spread of of radicalism, the breakdown of uh, governance and state order, Mm -hmm. uh, and the possibility of some of the problems that you've had in Afghanistan starting to
0: spread. Right. Uh, And 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 narcotics trade and so on. Yeah, well... that there's no, not that one. There should be more. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there, there should be more
1: cooperation on that. I, th- I think that's a higher priority for the Russians right now than it is for us. I see. Um, but you know, I, I think once all of the bandwidth in Washington is no longer focused on the Taliban and getting yeah. out of Afghanistan, that might be an area where there's
0: more um, attention being paid. I see. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for, for joining the New Books Network today and wish you the best of luck in those projects. And thanks, thank you again. Okay. Appreciate okay. All righty. I've been speaking with Jeffrey Mankoff about his book, Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Kevin Rothrock, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com, and be sure to tune in again for future interviews by me and my co-host, Sean Gillery. Many thanks for listening. Until next time.